On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Daniel Hauck about Thomas Aquinas, original sin, and the challenge of evolution. So we cover topics like what is original sin and why, if it does at all, does evolution pose a problem to it? What are the various historical opinions on original sin? And what is the Thomistic view in particular? And how might it help someone who wants to affirm evolution and yet still affirm original sin? What is original guilt? Is it necessary to retain for original sin? And much, much more. And there's even a postscript after the episode for some continued discussion that we thought was excellent and you'll enjoy. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that's devoted to thinking, but we don't want to just think in general in the abstract. We want to think well. And so we've taken some of these virtues from James 3 that we think can help us think well, and we're trying to create an intellectual culture that, that promotes them. So in that effort, we want to focus on and promote charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism, all while we think, and we think that's going to help us think really well. Now, today's episode of the podcast, I'm really honored to introduce you to Dr. Daniel Hauck. And if I pronounced his last name wrong, he can tell me, but he's nodding affirmatively, so I think I did it pretty well. But I'm really interested to talk to him about the subject of Thomas Aquinas, original sin and evolution. I think growing up, uh, I was you know just in a traditional Southern Baptist, Protestant, I guess, upbringing, and evolution was all the rage when I, when I was a kid, all sorts of questions about it. And since then, I really just haven't thought about it much. That's just out of sight, out of mind. I don't really think about the topic all that much. But I do think it is a critical issue for a lot of people. A lot of people really struggle with how do I reconcile uh, just the biblical accounts with evolution? And particularly from a theological perspective, I think original sin is a huge piece of that. So I'm looking forward to talking to you. Uh, You've got a book uh, on this very topic, Daniel, and I will make sure to link to it in the show notes so everybody can go check it out. I I think everybody we have on the show has all these awesome books, all this awesome, interesting research. So I, I recommend it all the time. I mean, if, if you're on the show, I think you're doing good work. You're doing interesting work. And you've got a podcast, too. So I'll give a shout out to that as well. Uh, then the Daniel Hauck podcast, I believe it is. Go find it on iTunes or wherever you listen. Uh, but before we get too much further, Daniel, can you give us just a little background to who you are and what got you interested in this particular topic? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me on, Jordan and Brandon. You guys are doing great stuff here. I'm a fan of the show, so it's really great to be here with you. And yes, in terms of how I got into the topic, it was originally kind of a historical investigation into Aquinas's view of original sin. I was doing a doctoral seminar at Southern Methodist University and looking at his view of nature and grace. And there's a whole lot of debate in Thomistic scholarship about how nature and grace are related in Aquinas' thought. And as I was researching that, I started to begin to think that sin or homardiology in general was neglected in the nature and grace scholarship around Aquinas. And then as I started to dig deeper into his account of original sin, it it seemed to me that it was extremely interesting. It was different from what I was familiar with. Uh, in many ways, it's similar to Augustine's account of original sin, but in many ways, it's different, which we can talk about as we kind of get into this. And uh, it's started to just really interest me in a constructive sense, like what could this say in today's context? And from there, I just started to learn more about some of the uh, challenges that evolution is posed to original sin and so on. And so I kind of just got go, got going, but it was originally a historical project. And then uh, I had the chance to do a fellowship at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School uh, that functioned kind of like a postdoc, but it was a research fellowship for me. And I really got into some of the evolutionary issues there. So, uh, hmm. but yeah, it basically started as a doctoral thesis on Aquinas and I started to uh, expand it and think about how it connected to contemporary problems as I went. And then the book itself is focused on the contempt. It's his historical element and a systematic constructive element, but ultimately focused on the kind of 
constructive end of trying to think about original sin and evolution. Yeah. And you're a pastor now, right? I am. Yeah, exactly. So I am a senior pastor of Calvary Hill Baptist Church uh, in Fairfax, Virginia, and an adjunct uh, professor of theology at the John Leland Center for Theological Studies in Arlington. And uh, so, yeah, so I am continuing to think about original sin, but also in a in a church context uh, as well. That's awesome. I feel like you're like one of our model type guests. I love it when we <laughs> have these guys who think well at a high level, but are also local church pastors. I mean, that's bridging this academic and ecclesiological gap. I think that's that's really cool. That's uh, nice of you to say. Yeah, it's it's definitely something I think is really important for the church, but something I'm still thinking through how to how to bring theology and and church life together. It's one of the interests of mine, and I love what you guys are doing in that regard too. So it's uh, it's great great to see it. Thanks, thanks. Well, I mean, I, th- I think the topic of original sin is you know obviously is tremendously important, and it has all kinds of ramifications for um, many other areas in theology. You know how we understand human nature in general, um, our understanding of justification. So this is this has um, implications in a lot of different areas. So. Let's begin just by telling us what original sin is, and then maybe from there you can talk about why specifically evolution has the potential to cause a problem for our view of original sin. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. It's it's a really tricky doctrine to define. I like to distinguish between the doctrine itself and different specific theories of the doctrine or different specific ways of trying to understand the doctrine. I give kind of a broad definition of the doctrine itself in the book. And that's because I don't want to avoid, I want to avoid kind of begging the question or sort of defining it in an overly narrow way that excludes theologians kind of a priori before we even start debating the nature of it. So I define the doctrine as the view that infants have sin from the womb or in more technical language, the beginning of their individual embodied existence. So that's a pretty broad definition, but it's basically just the idea that infants have sin, essentially. So it's a very, very broad one. But the reason why evolution has been thought to be a problem for the doctrine of original sin is related to a lot of traditional theories of the doctrine. So I just define the doctrine pretty broadly. But when it comes to, in particular, the traditional Augustinian theory or understanding of the doctrine of original sin, there are a few issues that have uh, really been problems. And basically, I divide them into three. There's probably, they could be subdivided into further problems as well. But the the three basic problems are the fact that in contemporary kind of mainstream evolutionary theory, there's the idea that we've descended from a fairly large population. And I call that the problem of communal origins. There is also the problem that we have inherited inherited tendencies on evolutionary theory that in Christian language would be dispositions to sins. So I call that the problem of our complex origins in the sense of morally complex. We don't just inherit good things. And then there's the problem of the fact that on the modern synthesis, kind of mainstream evolutionary theory, we change very gradually. So evolution happens over a very long period of time. And basically, these are all problems for arguably for Augustine's view of original sin. And I'll just kind of briefly explain why. But um, on the last point, the gradual evolutionary change, it poses a problem to any account of the fall that requires a kind of rupture in human nature or kind of cataclysmic change in human nature on the basis of a single action. So for Augustine, Uh, For example, when Adam was created, he was created good with a good nature and his desires were rightly ordered. He loved God. He loved Eve. He loved all of creation. All of his loves were perfectly ordered. And when he disobeyed God through an act of pride, his nature was corrupted just by virtue of that single act of pride. And by corrupting his nature, he then was able to pass on or had to pass on a corrupted nature to his descendants as well, who were there in his loins, in a sense. And we could talk more about that too, uh, as we as we get in deeper into Augustine's view. So that's a problem on evolutionary theory, because you don't have any concept of a single action 
kind of corrupting nature or in modern terms, you know, changing our DNA or, or anything like that. Uh, it's a very gradual process. And um, when it comes to the complex or morally ambiguous evolutionary legacy, Augustine and, and many others in his tradition would have, in the Augustinian tradition, would say that because Adam was created righteous, he didn't have any dispositions to sin whatsoever. And so if we have inherited uh, dispositions to sin, I talk a little bit about the example of aggressive violence that uh, a lot of biologists and mainstream uh, thinkers would would, th- would say that the first humans would have inherited that. Um, it's hard to see how that's compatible with a good creation, original righteousness. And finally, the problem of originating in a group that makes it difficult to understand how sin could actually be transmitted to all of humanity. So for Augustine in this, in his theory of original sin and many others as well, even non-Augustinian theories of original sin, it's very important that Adam is the one who transmits sin to the rest of humanity. And if there's this large group, then not everyone has descended from Adam. So it's not clear how they could actually contract original sin. So that's, that's kind of a summary of a few of the, a few of the problems. And I think it's, it's, for those reasons that a lot of people think that if they if they accept evolution, they think that original sin is just a, a myth or it's totally outdated. And then on the flip side of that, you have Christians who believe in original sin, but think that because it's incompatible with evolution, they need to reject evolutionary theory. So those are kind of three of the main the main challenges. There's other issues too, uh, and some of them. I mean, we could talk about the historical Adam and issues related to that. Yeah. I actually kind of separate that out a little bit uh, for mm. some reasons, but hopefully that's a little bit of a. Yeah, I mean, that that's really helpful. I, I can't help but think of, you know, my own upbringing and everything. And it seemed that the solution to this problem was always just reject everything that evolution has to offer. That's an incoherent theory. Doesn't matter what the science says. But it seems to me, as I've gotten older, if you can make them put put them together somehow, you you should want to do that. I, I think that's what the Christian tradition has typically done throughout its history. The the most important, impressive current science of the day, they try to find how Christianity can complement that view. So, may, and maybe it is you you end up having to reject aspects of evolution, but it seems to me just that's a normal, common thing to do in the Christian tradition is say, how can I make Christianity work? Yeah, I might have to you know, take off some rough edges of this theory, but I want to be consistent with the best science that we have. That that said, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about this topic. I just finished Oliver Crisp's uh, Analyzing Doctrine book, and he has a chapter on original sin in here. And he basically tries to break down and says, there are three core tenets common to all historic orthodox doctrines of sin. And I'm curious how you think this might map onto yours. He says, first, there was an original pair from whom we were all descended, which that seems to be a problem on the, the group problem, where if it's not an original pair, that's problematic. But that seems for him, that is a common confession on this doctrine. Second, there this pair committed the primal sin that adversely affects all their offspring. And third, that all human beings after the fall of the original pair are in need of salvation without which they will perish. So he doesn't put on how this transmits all these other types of things that depending on what confessional tradition or, or local church context you're in are essential to your doctrine of original sin. He kind of separates them. Do you think that maps on somewhat to how you are defining minimally what original sin is, or is he adding more or less than you would? I think it, I think his discussion there is, is a really good description that I, I forget the exact words you used or the words that he used, but it's what was, how did he say, how did he describe what he was doing there again? That was a description of... Yeah, these are the three core tenets common to all historic Orthodox doc- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great description of what is common in the tradition. Hmm. Absolutely. And for some traditions, some of those beliefs would be confessional or uh, yeah. considered essential. I think, um, I think that's absolutely true. And I, I think when it comes to this question of whether everyone has inherited sin from Adam and Eve from a single core pair, I think it's difficult to understand how either, there's really two things that seem to follow. If that's not the case that we all descend from Adam and Eve, it seems like either there are a, a lot of people that never get original sin 
uh, because they just don't descend from Adam or sin is built into nature somehow. You know, maybe there's maybe original sin is is natural to humanity in, in some way. And uh, if that's the case, then it would appear that, well, God must be responsible if he's creating people in sin and, and so on. Now, I argue against the um, I argue against the view that God is the cause of original sin in a recent article that's a follow up to the book uh, that just came out in, in Pro Ecclesia. But I think that when it comes to defining the doctrine, you're asking about the definition of the doctrine. I think, I, I guess I don't see the need to say that someone who says that original sin is, is part of human nature or caused by God, it's not clear that they're denying original sin. I mean, they might be committing another uh, theological mistake or error or something like that, but I don't know that it's a denial of original sin. Uh, Schleiermacher would be a historical example of someone who argues that God causes sin and I have a discussion of him. I think he actually, some people think he denies original sin. I think he actually tries to defend it, but he does it in a way that's uh, that's not traditional. I don't know if I'm getting into what you wanted to address there, Jordan. Or... No, I mean, that, that's, I, I was just curious about your thoughts on definitional wise, what that looks like. Though I, I am, I do want to focus and transition a little bit to just... Just real quick, Jordan, because uh, yeah. I, I can I can just hear people. <laughs> like, I so... <laughs> The, the the purpose of this episode is not to debate whether or not evolution is true. What what we're trying yeah. to do here is, it, it can there be an account of original sin and an account of evolution that we can um, find some compatibility there between the two? Because, um, of course, I, Dr. Houck's understanding of evolution is going to be different from others because he's obviously not a naturalist. So so there's a specific account of evolution that I think he would be a proponent of, but then also, um, you know, there's a specific maybe brand of original sin that we're going to discuss in more detail in just a moment. But, um, you know, I can just imagine people saying, Oh, well, you know, you, you just, you know, totally (laughs) given up the game or whatever by, you know, admitting that evolution is true. That's not the purpose of the podcast is to, to debate whether or not evolution is true. We're just going to bracket that off to the side and, and then try to find this compatible, um, brand of original sin and evolution so just yeah, wanted to put I mean, that out there i think even myself i i have no idea what i think about evolution i think probably naturally i, I fall back against it for the most part but I, I i have not studied it i don't really know and i and i don't really have a problem with it as long as it's compatible with the certain you know creedal orthodox type of claims that i want to have like original sin so to me i'm like as long as i can have all of these theological truths I don't really care how you get to this, how things worked um, along the way. And I I imagine that's probably similar to where you're at. I don't really know. I don't want to speak for you. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the book itself is very narrowly tailored. It's simply trying to address original sin and evolution. So there's obviously a lot of other problems when it comes to evolution, a lot of questions, image of God, uh, Mm -hmm. days of creation, many, many, many other things. I do defend the idea that original sin is not falsified by evolution. Yeah. And there's kind of a, there's a few components to it. Probably would help if I put it a little bit into the historical context of, of some of the different views first. I mean, one of the things I try to show in the first half of the book is that there are a lot of what I would call non-Augustinian theories of original sin. They're all, they're all, influenced by Augustine. They're all in dialogue with Augustine, but a lot of theologians in the Middle Ages in particular disagreed with Augustine on various points. And I think when we start to see the kind of variety in the tradition, the variety of theories of original sin, it kind of helps us understand that there is no easy way. It's not not like there's one sort of completely tightly defined account of the doctrine that just subsists you know, unchanged since Augustine. There's really a lot of, of different things going on. So there, I think when it comes to the development, there's, there's a few key points and then I'll just talk about Aquinas. But when you really get into the later middle ages or the, um, the 12th century in particular, not really later middle ages, but the, uh, in the 12th century, there's a, there's a variety of views and, uh, there's, probably two or three key points where people start disagreeing with Augustine. One of them is 
when you get to Abelard in the mid 12th century, he argues that it doesn't really make sense to inherit guilt. And so he argues that original sin is the debt of punishment that infants uh, have as a result of God deciding to treat them as if they had committed the sin of Adam. And for him, guilt is something that can only come if you are are one who commits that that action. Uh, but God, because he's transcendent, because he's all powerful, he's able to punish people as he wills. And so God's chosen to punish humanity for Adam's sin. That's just one example of of a uh, of someone who disagreed with Augustine on kind of a, a pivotal point. Um, the there's probably I mean I, I'm trying to decide how how much to get into these 12th century guys because I go fairly fairly deep in the book, but maybe it would help if I just kind of jumped to Aquinas and summarized some of the key points there. I don't mm-hmm. know where you guys want to go. Yeah, let's go to Aquinas. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so you have debates over things like the nature of inherited guilt uh, and, and, and various other issues that are going on in the Middle Ages. And I think that there's a few really interesting things about Aquinas's theory of original sin that I think can help in the evolutionary context. But first, Aquinas has a different conception of, of the effects of original sin compared to Augustine. Aquinas wants to argue that we think of original sin more as the loss of a gracious gift from God than as the corruption of nature. And basically that's because he thinks that the kind of gift that God has offered humanity has to come from God's grace. So ultimately the salvation that Adam and Eve would have obtained if they had not sinned and the salvation that we are when we're, if we're in Christ going to enjoy eternally comes from a supernatural gift of God. And that supernatural gift of God enabled Adam and Eve to love God above all things. It enabled them to have rightly ordered desires, and it would have enabled them in conjunction with eating of the tree of life, it would have enabled them to live forever. When Adam sinned, that grace was then forfeited for the rest of humanity, and human beings would be born without a kind of default state of that supernatural relationship with with God. We could use maybe the language of a personal relationship with God. It's not Aquinas's language, but you could think of it in those terms. And it doesn't involve, and this is crucial, it does not involve the corruption of nature in the strict sense. Um, nature for Aquinas is fundamentally in the proper sense of the word. It's about the kind of thing that makes us human. Uh, and so in order to continue to exist as human beings after the fall, we need to possess human natures. Uh, and if the nature was destroyed, if, it, if we actually lost a property that was strictly natural, then for Aquinas, in Aquinas's kind of lexicon, that would be like losing an essential property. We wouldn't actually exist as humans. So the way that he kind of frames the doctrine is primarily as the loss of a gracious gift and not as the corruption of nature. And so now that's, you know, there's a lot of controversial aspects about that. And it was debated in his own day. It's been debated for centuries and people still uh, debate it today in terms of whether that's a better way theologically to approach original sin. But what I suggest is that when you think of it in those terms and you think of original sin more as the loss of grace than as the corruption of nature, you don't run into the same problems that you do with evolutionary theory. Uh, So for a couple of examples, one would be if we're talking about this problem of the gradual change that evolution affects and the difficulty of thinking about a single action corrupting a nature. Well, on Aquinas's account, you just don't have that problem because it's the loss of a supernatural gift. So when, when Adam sins or when the first human sins, then subsequent human beings won't enjoy the gift of grace. But there's no idea that, that their nature was corrupted or in our terms that their DNA was corrupted or anything like that. So you simply don't have that problem. Um, something similar goes, I think, when it comes to the legacy of, of evolution, things like dispositions to maybe aggressive violence that we may have gotten from non-human ancestors, things of that nature. You can say, I think, without contradicting evolution at all, that the first human beings enjoyed a gift of supernatural grace. They enjoyed a relationship with God. God gave them guidance. God gave them moral guidance and so on. And 
there's nothing in that belief, I think, that contradicts evolutionary theory in, in any way. And so you can preserve a sense of original righteousness or original goodness and the belief that there were dispositions to behaviors that we would call sinful as Christians at the same time. So it helps us with that problem of the complex legacy that we would have from evolutionary history. It helps us with the problem of gradual change. And um, I also think that it is related to the problem of communal origins, because if original sin is more a loss of that gracious relationship with God as opposed to something that is transmitted through sexual reproduction or that involves the corruption of nature, you can basically say that there's a kind of pact or covenant that God has with the first human beings, with Adam and possibly with others, depending how you want to frame it. And then as a result of an early sin or sins, then that grace is withheld from other human beings, whether they're descended from Adam or not. So, I mean, that's kind of a lot of, that's kind of a lot that I just, that I just went to right there. So we can kind of dig into to any of that if, if we want, but yeah. Just to make sure I'm understanding, uh, cause maybe I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> so to try to marry Aquinas's view um, of original sin and evolution. So we would have um, under an evolutionary view, this gradual change over time where there becomes this first group of what we know today as humans, whether that be 10,000 or however many now. So then the super added gift um, of grace, is that just something that um, God at some point in time chooses to bestow on a subset of that group? Or how does that work out on putting these two together? There's a few different ways that you could think of this going that are compatible with the theory of original sin that I propose. I don't take a really strong stand on exactly how this developed, but for one way you could do it is you could say that when the first humans began to exist, they also immediately received sanctifying grace or this kind of personal relationship with God. So at the very beginning of their existence, God gave them this relationship, this, this kind of covenant. So that's, that's one way to do it. I mean, I, and I, or yeah, is that what you're asking, Brandon? Or would that be all of, of the humans who, who evolved at that point, or would that be a, a smaller subset or would that be, you know, um, just a pair? Cause I guess I'm trying to weave this back into the Gen- Genesis narrative. Is that more understood as, um, so, you know, I guess this does just get into the discussion of a historical Adam. And, and I mean, I, I guess that's going to, maybe that'll take us too far afield, but I'm just trying to figure out. No, it's a good question. It's closely yeah. related. And I mean, the, the basic, so one way to go, and as I say, I don't get into all the specific, the specifics of this in the book itself. I am hoping to actually continue to write on this topic and address mm-hmm. this in the future, in future writings. But yeah, one way that, you could go with my theory would just be to say that all of the first humans, you know, maybe however, however many there were, maybe 10,000 or whatever, they all received sanctifying grace. They all received this relationship with God. And you could say that God chose one of them and, you know, call this guy, Adam, (laughs) you know, this first, you could say one of these first human beings had to obey in order for subsequent human beings to continue on in that relationship. And to continue to receive that grace, but because he didn't, then that grace was withheld. I would, you know, when it comes to Genesis, if you think that Genesis teaches clearly that all humanity descends from Adam and Eve, then my view here is going to be, that's going to be a Mm non-starter. I do think that there are reasons to think that Genesis is open on that question, but it's obviously controversial. I think, I mean, if you go to Genesis 4 and... Uh, think about the wife of Cain and, and things of that nature. I think there's mm-hmm. some suggestions there that might uh, indicate that it's open, but that is that is of course a controversial issue. As I'm thinking about your account, I, I can't help but think of something like: Is this compatible with something like what Westminster might try to say? Where I think they have pretty minimal claims. You know, God created everything out of nothing. They do say he created the world in the space of six days. Now, I, I 
think I've heard that there's interpretation on what <laughs> confession means by what is six days in this case. But it does say that um, after God made all the other creatures, he created man, male, and female, and so on. So it is this, and I mean, he, it does say he was endowed them with knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and his image, and et cetera. Is this compatible with what you're saying or not? I think there are some differences between Aquinas's account of original sin that I'm kind of working with and the more Augustinian account that's presupposed at Westminster by Westminster, but I'm not an expert on the Westminster confession of faith at all. So I don't want to speak too confidently in that direction. One thing I would say though, is that for those who are working in the reform tradition, and this is a question I would be curious to to get your guys uh, instinct on this. It, It seems to me that if you are working with, an account of original sin that focuses on God's judgment of humanity, something that uh, I think can be rooted ultimately in Abelard's emphasis on the fact that God has decided to punish humanity for Adam's sin. Technically, it's true that Abelard denies original guilt, but some of this gets semantic because some people later on are going to define original guilt as this kind of liability to be treated in the way that Adam deserved. So Abelard doesn't think that should be called guilt, but some people mm-hmm. will think of guilt precisely in the sense of that liability to punishment. But if you're in that kind of reform tradition of emphasis, which I, I'm aware of that there's debates within the reform tradition on the nature yeah. of original sin as well, but at least one prominent uh, theory is focused on God appointing Adam as federal head and then mm-hmm. punishing others uh, in participation with Adam's sin. So uh, my question for you guys is, could there be room in that kind of account, that kind of theory, to have a not strictly monogenetic account of origins from Adam, because it's ultimately rooted in God's decision to yep. incorporate people in, in the covenant and to punish yep. them. Like, in other words, do you need yep. Adam as a, as a natural head in order for him to be a federal head? Uh, yeah, no, I, that's a good question. Uh, my intuition is to say you don't, because it seems like the nature of the covenants after that are just as, I don't want to say arbitrary, but it's not like they're uh, being made with every single person. So it seems that it, it would be open to that as far as my intuition goes. I mean, what do you think, Brandon? Yeah, I mean, I, d- I definitely think, um, I'm trying to think of the name of this little booklet. Um, let's, uh, see. Well, let me just say this first. I mean, I think... Um, this is my big hangup. I, 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 for me, the a historical Adam maps on, um, you know, it, th- that Adam being one man who sinned and that we sinned all in, we all sinned in him. Um, I think that's, that makes most sense of my understanding of, of passages like Romans five. Um, and, and, and it seems that parallel that Paul was making between Adam and Christ seems to make most sense in light of a view like that. But here's the book that that I was trying to think of. It's a just a small little little booklet by Richard Gaffin. Uh, I don't know if you guys have even heard of this, but it's called No Adam, No Gospel, Adam and the History of Redemption. It's like 30 pages. I mean, it's super short. Um, I read it a few years ago, and it just basically makes the case. It, that's This is what he's doing. He's saying that a historical Adam is absolutely necessary for a reform view of, of federal headship and imputed righteousness. Um, that if we if we want the imputed righteousness of Christ, then we have to accept the view of imputed guilt uh, from Adam because the, those two are paralleled, especially in Pauline theology. But do you think that the strict monogenetic descent from Adam is is required for a historical Adam? In other words, what if Adam was a historical individual, a man, and the federal head of humanity, but not every single human descended from him. Would that count as a historical Adam, even if it's maybe the wrong decision to make for whatever reason? But yeah, I mean, I think, um, so you're saying, could there be one man, Adam who sinned and God has appointed him as the federal head of all men, even if, all men did not physically descend from that man. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm asking. I'm just curious if you would count that as a historical Adam. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I, um, 
I just think that there being one man, Adam, who sinned that that God counts as our federal head is like for me, at least right now, in my present understanding, kind of the non-negotiable. Like that's just where I I can't leave that, and like my, and my theology just doesn't make any sense if if I leave that behind. But as far as the the physical descent piece of that, I don't see that as necessary. Um, but it does seem it seems to make more sense for sure. I'm not going to say it doesn't, but I I wouldn't say that it it seems necessary, but Jordan, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but yeah, I, I'm trying to think through this issue. You know, I've been reading a lot more uh, stuff on original sin just by, by chance. I not, not by like, I'm going to go study original sin. It just seems a lot of the books I've been reading have had chapters on this. So it's been stimulating my mind as I've been thinking about it. And the more I've read about reformed accounts, it seems that there's a lot of variation and it's not always the federal headship. That's the key for them. Some of them seem to be going more of a genetic route. I don't remember the, the specific terminology for that. I think William Shedd's an example of someone who's saying, and I think it's very Augustinian, where it's like actually transmitted physically in some way to to your progeny, this um, inherited corrupt nature. And I look at something like Westminster, who I think is in this tradition, like we talked about, where Adam and Eve are the root of all mankind. The guilt of that their sin has been imputed to all human beings who are their natural descendants and have inherited the same death and sin and same corrupt nature. So I do think imputation of guilt is necessary, but I'm not totally sure uh, that it's required that you have a federal headship view to make sense of that. Uh, I think you could affirm this, confess this, and go more of a genetic route where it's being passed corrupt nature on and on. And I don't think that would be detrimental to our understanding of Christ's imputation of his righteousness to us. I don't think, I don't see there's a problem with those being discontinuous to some degree. Um, it does. It's not like it has to be the exact same. This is exactly how it was broken. This is exactly how it's fixed and remedied. Um, and I don't think the confession, at least this confession tells us exactly that's how it must these par- must parallel each other exactly. Because I look at original sin here, and even here it, it confesses that this broken, this corrupt nature remains in those who are regenerated. So that doesn't seem to be an exact parallel to me if that's going to stay broken, even in, in when we have been imputed the righteousness of Christ and stuff. I, I don't know if I'm making sense. Well, it's not going to stay broken to... forever, you know. Yeah, no, that's... I agree. Yeah, because so all those who are in Christ will eventually have that totally unbroken in the new yeah. creation. So, I mean, well, go ahead. So I thought you were I mean, about to say something. No, I, I'm I'm just trying to think through. I think there's a variation of views you could have if you want to stay in this traditional, broad, reformed camp and trying to think about what would be compatible with this Thomistic account that could say, yeah, yeah let's join up together. Uh, I can affirm this, I, and I, I'm cool jettisoning that or whatever that may be and still staying in this traditional reformed broad umbrella. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's dig into that a little bit, actually, Jordan, if, if that's all right, because I, yeah. I think it's a really interesting question. I think the Thomistic view that I'm developing, uh, that I propose, I don't think it's identical to what I would call a federalist view of original sin, but it is similar in some ways. And just to be clear about where I where I am taking a position, I would say that there is some kind of covenant or pact between God and the first humans, and that if they had obeyed, then original sin would not have been transmitted to their posterity. So there is a strong kind of legal or juridical aspect of my view. Now, that's not identical to Aquinas's, and I kind of spell out some of the differences in the book. But I think that does put me somewhat close to a Federalist account. Um, so there's two things I'd be curious to talk about a little more with you guys here. One is, what is what's the exact nature of the imputation of Adam's sin in in your view and or and or Federalist view? Um, because for, for me, there is a sense in which the posterity of Adam are being treated as though they had committed Adam's sin because they are being punished. Like they, they are not enjoying the grace that they would have gotten if the first humans had obeyed. And so 
by not receiving that gift or that goodness, they are being punished. So the, the, in, in my account, in my Tobis account, that's that's how I would put it. But I don't think that they pre-existed in Adam. And so I, I don't think that makes yeah. ultimately makes any sense. Yeah. And so I want to be clear that they're, they are not, it's not as though God is confused and, and thinks they did something they didn't do. Um, you know, they didn't like pre-exist in Adam's loins or anything like that on my account. And so I try to clearly distinguish my view from Augustine's uh, in that way. So I guess I'm curious. I mean, it sort of depends on the nature of imputation there, exactly how close I'd be to federalism, I guess. Yeah, no, that, that's good. And I mean, I'm getting stretched a little bit because to some degree, I haven't stretched these muscles in a, oh, that's in a fine. while. Yeah, I didn't want to put um, you on the spot either. I was just curious. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Brandon's probably more knowledgeable than I am as far as on imputation stuff. And I I mean, I'm just looking through even just now the, the confession on where, where does imputation show up? And imputation shows up in the fall and in, in justification. And it doesn't really tell me much other than sin's been imputed, obedience has been imputed, or righteousness has been imputed. I don't think it spells out a mechanism for what that imputation has to look like. I, I would have to go look, you know, and say, okay, let me read through Turretin, let me read through Bavink, let me read through all these guys to see how they spell out imputation. Uh, Brandon, do you have a ready-made definition for, for you, how you would say this is what imputation must look like to be imputation? Nope. No. Yeah. Neither do I. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I, I just, I, I, mean, I don't know. I, I just understand it as a, you know, you know, on the account of or reckoned, you know, it's, it's, it's made ours, um, you know, by God's appointment. Like, um, I didn't have to do anything to achieve this. It's just, it's, it's given to me. Right. Yeah. And it, it's, it's counted as mine despite not actually doing it. Yeah. I mean, one, I mean, one traditional way of thinking about it is that the exact same penalty that Adam deserved the infant to whom his sin is imputed deserves. So that's, that's one right. way you could, you could think about it. Um, yeah. And just to go back to the, you know, I'm just thinking through what we were talking about earlier. You know, I think, um, the Westminster and, and the second London, you know, are, are, they want to draw one to one between those who are, um, under the federal headship of Adam and those who physically descend from Adam. Um, and I, I mean, I, I believe that that's, that's my view, but I, what you asked me earlier now has made me think, um, I, and of course, you know, wanting to stick with the confession, which, you know, if I, if I'm convinced otherwise I'll leave the confession, but you know, um, on, on this issue, but, um, but it does seem you can maintain a federal headship, while not having the natural descent. Um, but I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't map on as naturally, but I, I just, I'm trying to think of a reason why you couldn't do that. If, if the federal headship is just, is, is, is God's appointed, you know, God has, has taken Adam and he is, he has appointed him head. Um, I'm, I'm not sure why you have to have um, natural posterity um, versus, just all of humanity after him. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think that that would make sense in a in that framework, especially with the emphasis on God's sovereign right to to yeah. do as He pleases. One, someone might ask, well, then where do you get the corrupted nature if Adam's not the natural head? And I think if you were to try to put that view in an evolutionary context, that's where you could get it. You could say, well, the there's this evolutionary history that has brought about all these dispositions to behaviors that we would call sinful. So that that's one possible way mm -hmm. to go. Yeah. And I mean, this is, this is fascinating. So I'm really interested in you talking about all this. I feel like it's taken a little bit of a turn, uh, but well, I think this is really interesting. Yeah. So, I like digging into these. It's, yeah. it's fun to kind of dive into some of these things a little bit, a little bit deeper. And if I could just circle back a little bit too, Brandon, you know, when you were saying earlier that the, it was important that there was one federal head. I think on my view, like the view that I propose in this, in the book is compatible with God choosing one single man hmm. and saying, 
if this man obeys, then grace is going to go to everyone, even those that don't descend from him. And if he doesn't obey, then it's going to be withheld from subsequent people. So the mm-hmm. basic proposal I'm making is compatible with that. I guess for me, I'm I'm kind of open on whether it was one or whether there might have been many. I mean, mm-hmm. for me, like just even in a traditional view, like let's say that everyone does descend only from Adam and Eve. Like if God had, um, I mean, if things were set up in a way that Adam and Eve both had to sin in order for sin to be transmitted, but then, you know, but Paul called, you know, Paul t- focuses on Adam for for whatever reasons, but ultimately Adam and Eve both had to sin. I mean, if that were true, I'm not sure what we would lose if that were true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question that I haven't thought about. You know, if in this situation in the garden, had Eve been the only one to sin, would that mean that there would be a corrupt nature and original sin all down the line if Adam is supposed to be the federal head. And it's interesting in in the tradition, you see like Aquinas, for example, is very clear that if Adam sins, but Eve does not sin, sin still gets transmitted. And if, if it goes the other way around, then it would not be transmitted. So Eve could have sinned, but if Adam had stayed upright, there would be no original sin. It would only be Eve who was, who was condemned. So unpack for me a little bit what you mean when so so let's just start over. So in the traditional uh, view that I'm going to call the traditional view, <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a radical change in the way the world looks pre-fall and post-fall. But on your view, there even if there is this historical pair who 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 falls into sin, the the change in nature is is not this radical change that you have on the traditional view. So how, how do we best, and then may, maybe this, this gets into what you're talking about, about the dispositions and stuff. Um, but could you just elaborate on that a little bit more on the, on yeah, the Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's a radical. So on my view and I'll just, there's, I actually list a couple of different options, a couple different ways you can take this that are compatible with my view, but I'll just say that, Either way, on my view, when the first humans lose the gift of original righteousness, there is a radical change in them as persons because they lose this close relationship and ultimately this this um, this tight knit relationship, personal relationship they have with God. And so their their lives are radically changed because they lose that. They're now stuck in idolatry and they're deserving of condemnation and and so on. But their nature doesn't change because nature just re- is a word that refers to their possession of, of the human essence, basically. I mean, for Aquinas, nature is used in a lot of different ways, but the proper sense of the term basically refers to essence. And so in his kind of lexicon, and I think this is a reasonable way of talking, to have human, to have human existence, you need a human nature. So nature is basically what's essential, and then the other kind of properties that are uh, that are essential. So in in the in that regard, they don't lose anything natural. But there are a lot of other different ways that we can use the word natural, and even Aquinas will use it in a broader sense to refer to what is good for human beings. And so if we're talking about what's good for us, then in that sense, nature was destroyed or corrupted because their good was in God, and then they lost that relationship to God and turn to idolatry. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Cool. Um, man, I feel like I've got lots more questions and thoughts that we could go through on this topic, but um, I, I want to make sure that I ask you for recommended resources. If, if, if someone, maybe it's just a novice, I don't know what original sin is. I don't know how to think about the scientific questions related to evolution or maybe it's someone who's more expansive in their knowledge. What are your go-to resources for this particular topic? Yeah, it's it's kind of a tricky topic because I think there are a lot of new resources that are coming out. A lot of things are being written about it. I would say that I've tried to summarize my own view a little bit more succinctly and hopefully more clearly in a recent article in Pro Ecclesia. It's called toward a new account of the fall informed by Anselm of Canterbury and Thomas Aquinas. And so hopefully that would help. Um, 
I think there's there's several there's several books that um, I don't know if you guys typically like to link to to many things or not, but uh, there's there's a couple of edited volumes that have come out recently, um, and we can I could possibly give you guys the links there uh, if that would if that would be helpful. But uh, definitely there's there's a few people that are that are writing on this. You mentioned Oliver Crisp. I believe he's working on a book on original sin that uh, I'm not sure exactly when that's coming out, but he has a couple articles uh, that I think are, are helpful and he's coming from a you know, reform background uh, as well. And uh, there is, there's a lot of discussion about the historical Adam. I think um, Josh Swamidas has, has just recently, recently published a book on that topic. I can't remember the title off the top of my head, but uh, he's, kind of exploring it in some interesting ways. And uh, I would say those are, those are a couple folks that are, that have been involved in the discussion. Tom McCall has a book on the doctrine of sin that came out with Crossway recently that has a lot of discussion of original sin and some discussion of the evolutionary issues in play as well. So I would really recommend Tom's book as well as, as a, uh, another uh, resource that I think really helps lay out the kind of give the lay of the land. That's good. Uh, I know you mentioned Crisp, and I know we've mentioned him. I, I would, I do want to mention what's interesting. He he tries to argue that, I guess, in the broadly Reformed tradition, thirty nine articles, Belgic Confession, it does not uh, confess original guilt, which I think is interesting because I do think most people, at least in contemporary Reformed circles, want to have that original guilt, and it seems that that is probably one of the more challenging pieces of this whole question right? If I get rid of original guilt, it seems that I have far fewer problems to reconcile. If I want to keep original guilt, it seems that it's way more challenging to make sense of all this. Am I thinking about that right? I would agree, especially when it comes to some of the issues in kind of philosophical theology. I think that when it comes to evolutionary theory, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's harder to keep original guilt or or not i think some of the accounts that deny original guilt still have huge problems when it comes to evolution especially when it comes to this idea of nature being corrupted in any way by a single act and inheriting bad dispositions and whether we can get it from adam or whether there's a larger group all of those problems are common to a lot of different theories and original guilt i think does create a lot of issues but i'm not quite sure in terms of evolution whether it's whether that actually makes it harder or not. That's interesting. And, and Brandon, I, I'm interested, I, you know, I just pulled up Romans five again and just for five, verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. So <laughs> it's not an exact parallel. I don't think it doesn't have to be. It tells me that it's not like it. I mean, I know it goes on to say that it seems that the difference here is one or I, many die through the trespass, but more have grace and the free gift. So, um, yeah, exactly. I think that's I think that's key, and another key aspect of this discussion exegetically uh, would be five fourteen, which talks about those who have not sinned in the likeness of the transgression of Adam. I personally don't see why that's not an implicit reference to infants. I, I think it could be. I mean, some people say it's just a reference to those who didn't receive uh, the law, and so they are not uh, as, as accountable. I think that could be the reference, but if there is an idea of original sin in this passage, and I think there is, then it seems plausible that infants would be in that category as well. Those who haven't sinned exactly in the way that Adam did, but nevertheless are under the reign of death and uh, do have sin. So on your account, what does a sin for an infant look like? Sin is the lack of grace. It is the lack of that gift that were they to have it and develop, they would sort of naturally, so to speak, or automatically be in this covenant relationship with God, but they don't have it. And that's what they need. It's what we all need is Christ and his grace. That's helpful. Brandon, do you, do you have any other questions? No, I don't think so. Cool, man. This has been a lot of fun. I, I've I've learned a lot. I've thought a lot. I've probably said some dumb things that people can. Not, blast not at all. No, I, this was this was a blast. <laughs> thanks, thanks for talking, guys. And it just shows to show. I mean, there's so many. I feel like we. Uh, I feel like we barely scratched the surface of some uh, of some of these things. There's there's so much going on here. But really, enjoy, enjoy the conversation. 
Yeah, no, this has been great. And obviously I encourage everybody to check out your stuff. I think you're doing some interesting things. <laughs> I'll have to fix that. Hold on. Nah, just leave it in there, man. It's all good. Just leave it in there. Yeah, you yeah. want to? I feel like ever since uh, COVID, I have to record my, when I'm recording half the time. My son's in here, so you can. Sometimes... Augustine would say that's the the sin right there. The effect of the sin, <laughs> the crying, the crying infant. So, yeah, I guess back to the point. I mean, I've had fun. This has been, I think, made me think about a lot of things that I haven't thought about in the past. And uh, helps me try to straighten out and make sure I have a consistent view of what I have, as well as have a view that, I mean, for me, it would be a positive thing. If, if I can onboard evolution, even if I don't think it's true, even if I think it's wrong, it seems that if I can onboard uh, claims that other people want to have and without giving up my own commitments, that seems like a win for me. So if there's a way for me to have a broader acceptance of other people, say, hey, you can come on over with me and still affirm this, then that's a positive. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. And I think it's a win for the church. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of Christians, either they go to college or they just go on YouTube and they see all kinds of stuff about the incompatibility of, yeah. of faith yeah. and science. And so that is something that's kind of at the heart of my motivation here is trying to show people that there is a way that they can believe that Christ is Lord and and some of these key doctrines uh, that are in scripture and not necessarily have to completely reject what's going on in the mainstream sciences there. Yeah, no, that's good. And I, I understand there's probably a lot of our listeners who are like, yeah, man, that, all that mainstream science, that's just garbage and trash. And I, okay, that's fine. Uh, but we, as long as we can all agree on certain core commitments, I think that's, that's the important thing. And I think I would want to say, yeah, maybe I disagree with you on X, Y, and Z, but we all agree on this core commitments. And that's, for me, that's, that's what I'm all about is bringing people together on agreement on these central issues of Christianity and uh, making room for others who may disagree on secondary, third tier type matters. So this has been fun. I, I recommend Ooh. all your stuff. It's, it's, I'm looking forward to the things you've got coming down uh, the pike in the future, and we will definitely recommend those as well. So everybody's been listening. You've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we thank you for tuning in. You pushed me. <laughs> yeah, it was that was a lot of fun. I, I hope I um I hope I didn't get too uh th there were so many issues. I hope it was all right that I didn't go through I wasn't sure it, it was because the way we laid it out was great, but then I started to think, well, if I really go through all this historical stuff, that could just take a a long time. I think the differences between Aquinas and the Reformed tradition, when you start getting into the details. There, there are some real differences there, especially when it comes to the effects of the fall. And I, I get into that and in some of the differences between Aquinas and Augustine on that issue that I think then are ultimately differences between Aquinas and the Reformed and how that relates to free will. And some, so there's a lot of, there are differences, but uh, I do think that federal head stuff can be, I feel like there's room for people that to kind of develop that and yeah. tweak that in, in a lot of ways. Potentially. And I, I just am not well read enough or th well thought enough on this topic to be like, this is how to make it work. I think it would be interesting to have more work on this dialogue on like, okay, well, let's take a federal headship scheme. What exactly is it that we must affirm here? And what can we be loose on to allow for a broader tent on this? I think that's a, that'd be an interesting area of research that I just, I, I, maybe it's out there and I just don't know. I don't, I haven't really seen it, honestly. I mean, mm -hmm. I've seen, I don't know if you guys have, have seen much or read much of Mark Knoll's stuff, but he's, he has mm -hmm. some essays on Hodge and, um, mm -hmm. I know that he himself has, has kind of written on some faith science stuff. And I think he likes Hodge in this, but he's, you know, not a systematician. Yeah, and, yeah. um, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't seen it. I know some people like Chris, but he's going in a different direction. He's not really going yeah, for federalism at all. So, um, yeah, he wants to punt on federalism and punt on original guilt. Yeah. Yeah. He, I, he, he just basically. Did he, did he change his view on original guilt? Cause I, divinity and humanity, he affirms it, right? Yeah. He changed his mind. He, he pretty much says it's okay. immoral because you should not be guilty for yeah. someone else's sin. 
Because he made the exact opposite argument in Divinity and Humanity. I remember the footnote now. He's like, it's, it, it, I mean, this is my paraphrase, but he would be like, it's ridiculous to inherit corruption apart from guilt when the guilt came prior to the corruption. Like that was kind of his point um, in that footnote. And now it seems like, which I mean, you know, I mean, I've changed my mind on things too. So I mean, more power to him. But yeah, um, yeah I, I was, it's just a total 180. Yeah. Man, I think to me, it just, um, it just depends how you're defining original guilt. And I, I mean, I'm, I mean, do you guys have to go or let me know? I mean, I don't want to keep you, but no, I can talk. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious how you, because def- to me, it's like, if, if guilt is the liability to punishment, then I would defend original guilt. And I would say that infants are being punished for Adam's sin, even on my account, a kind of non-federalist account. I think they're being punished for Adam's sin. I think the loss of the grace that they would have gotten is a punishment, but uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, and I think that's, that's how I would interpret the condemnation Paul's talking about uh, in Romans 5, 12 through 21. They they're under the condemnation in the sense that they deserve, they don't deserve heaven. So their default destination without grace would, would be hell and they're going to die. So I would, I would include all that in the, in the condemnation, but, uh, but I don't think that they are, guilty of the numerically same sin as adam i guess that's how i would put it like they have their own sin like they're Mm -hmm. numerically distinct from adam's sin so if original guilt means oh that's all like literally one new you know numeric same sin and they're guilty of that sin i would deny that yeah and i just think and and for and i have not thought you know, a very in depth about this, but, you know, just thinking about imputed righteousness um, from Christ, you know, if, if we're not imputed the guilt of Adam and then we're just given like um, some, some nature that's corrupted, merely the corrupted nature. um, And then, you know, it's our own sins that condemn us. It seems like to me, then you're from Christ, you're given this new nature, but then, your 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 own good works or what justify you um which totally does not map on to what i believe about justification so this has like all kinds of you know implications that so it's not just you know what i believe about this one doctrine you know it it, it kind of frays out into all of these other areas and that's why you know like i mentioned earlier about you know the the westminster jordan you read part of it and you know the second london's saying the same thing that, you know, Adam is, is, you know, appointed head of, of mankind. And then it also affirms that natural um, posterity piece. And then I got to thinking, well, can we have one and not the other? Well, I mean, you know, that's what I like about confessionalism is I can just kind of stay there at, with the, the, the confession as like my home base, but I can, you know, I can go out and, and test these other views and if I'm not convinced by them, then I have my home base to come back to. But that doesn't mean, you know, mm-hmm. I don't believe the confession is inerrant or anything, but uh, it's just a good way to kind of plant my feet and give me a place to to argue from, I guess, you know? Yeah, totally. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I was, um, I was actually, it's kind of, it's interesting. I, I was actually raised in a, um, a pretty liberal Baptist church. So I don't really have a confessional background. And then I, I came to Christ as a teenager and wound up going to Wheaton and sort of found my way into evangelicalism from there. So I don't, I don't have that uh, same, I don't have like a confessional background in my own kind of Baptist background. And now, but it is that I, I totally, there's a lot of advantages to it as you're, as you're saying, I mean, I kind of, and I wasn't raised in a confessional church, you know, I was raised in a very, um, just whatever whatever you would define as like traditional Southern Baptist church. And I just think the rooting yourself in a confession just has so many advantages. Um, You know, I mean, not only are you standing on the shoulders of a lot of great theologians, um, but I I like that having, having that home base, like, um, you know, to go back to, if I'm not convinced by, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's easy to be like, here's my starting place. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to, to stay here unless proven otherwise. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff that, like, I just, like, this, even this topic, yeah. I just haven't thought about it enough. So I can go here and say, well, I know a lot of people have thought about this. And uh, exactly. a lot of people have yeah. affirmed this for the last 400 years. So I feel confident 
this is a largely coherent idea that I can start with and build and think from there. Yeah, even if it ends up being wrong, it's not totally like baseless and (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.